Well, good to see you. Good to be back with you from South Africa, and uh, what a what some great stories we had. And and I know our team could go on for hours, and we'll try to give you more opportunities to hear that uh, the stories. But I want to ask you a question: How many of you ever feel stressed? That's good. Glad I'm pastor of this group. Everybody's stressed out. How many ever just feel like it never ends? Life just never ends. You know, I was thinking about just kind of being tethered to my phone and tethered to a computer and all of that, and it really never ends anything. And then you couple that with life. And if you have children and those children are involved in sports, you know what I'm talking about when you know it never ends. And then the, 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 just the striving to try to succeed or survive, whichever mode you happen to be in, it never ends. And today we're going to be talking about Sabbath rest. And it's interesting because when you go through this order of creation, these seven days, and now we've covered six of those, we go to the seventh day, it is a day of rest for God. It's not the Sabbath rest that Moses would speak of, nor is it the Sabbath rest that Jesus would speak of in the New Testament. There really are three Sabbaths that operate in Scripture. Now, what we're going to look at today to start with is God's rest, and then we're going to springboard into what does that mean for us and, and how do we apply that to our life. But before I read the Scripture from Genesis, I, just, I want to read this to you, and I want you just to relax for a moment. Everybody relax? I just listen to this. To me, whenever I'm striving, whenever I'm feeling stress, I read this or I just quote it to myself, and it somehow does something to me. Jesus spoke these words. He said, come to me. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I'm coming to you. He says, you come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, God wants us to take the initiative to go to him to find rest. In other words, he wants us to stop striving long enough to go to him. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, part of what we do is we carry this gigantic burden called life, and we've so engineered our world that it never really ends. It operates almost 724. Seven days a week, we're striving. Seven days a week, we're trying to, to do this, just a little bit more time, just a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, and then we wonder why we find ourselves stressed and without rest. Why we feel, you know, feel like we're pulling everything from every direction and it's just never really working fully. And we just say, you know, I can't wait to get a vacation. And then you finally schedule one into your life and you get five days or seven days or two weeks or whatever you get and you go away and you come back and life is, hasn't changed at all. Because the whole idea of Sabbath rest that comes from God is not about stopping it's about a relationship that we enter into, that we can enter into every day. Let me take you to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, and let me just read this, and we'll begin to work our way through uh, the Word of God. It begins with these words, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. 
And that word finished means it is ready for someone. God didn't finish it just so he could be finished. He finished it for you and for me. He finished his creation. And on the seventh day, God ended the work which he had done, and he rested. And this is literally the word Sabbath. In fact, the word Sabbath and rest and seven are really all from the same root. It all just simply means stop doing what you're doing. You can't run seven days a week doing what you're doing and experience rest. And on the seventh day, from all his work, which he had done, and then God blessed the seventh day. He didn't bless the other days. He only blessed one day. And he sanctified it. In other words, he said it means to make it pure. Because he rested from all the work which he had created and made. Now, God didn't rest because he was fatigued. God doesn't get tired like you and I get tired. He doesn't expend energy. We like to put it like this. God can move a universe as easy as he can move a pencil because he he doesn't use any power, any energy to do so. What he did was he stopped. He said, okay, that's done. This ends the creative dimension of God in Scripture. From this point on, creation is done. Now God is, if we could put it this way, in management mode. Now what God is doing is interacting with man. He's guiding man. He's, he's keeping everything running in the, in the universe, but creation has stopped. There comes a point at which God said, okay, I'm done. The other thing that's interesting is it's the only day where God doesn't talk about uh, evening and morning of, the, of that particular day. If you go to day one, it's evening and morning of the first day, evening and morning of the second day, it, because Sabbath is never supposed to end. It doesn't operate on a seven-day cycle. It operates differently. The message of the Sabbath is a message of resting in God, really resting in God, so that when the worst situation in your life develops, all of a sudden you're at rest, you're at peace. I remember one time I had bought a new little pickup truck. I was in college, and I had my buddy with him, and we had it. I had it 18 hours, and I was driving through an intersection, and a, a girl ran a red light and totaled that little car. And fortunately, no one was hurt. And I got out of the car, and, and I went over to see if the girl was all right, and the police and everybody else, and, and uh, I remember two or three people saying, why are you so calm? I said, it's a car. It's just a car. Why would I get upset about something like that? And I've often thought back to that, how many times I should have said it's just a, and then fill in the blank. It's just a car. It's just a job. It's just a situation. It's just a setback. It's just this, this, and this. It's not that big a deal. And we make so, such a big deal about stuff in our life that we can't function with peace. And we hear those words, and it's just almost relaxing. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, I will give it to you. But you have to come to me. I will give it to you. You mean I don't have it all the time? No, you have to come and get it. Come and get what I have for you. John Lennox put it like this. The institution of the Sabbath would remind us of the ever-present danger of human beings becoming subservient to creation rather than the creator. You know, what, you know what creation, how we can become subservient to it? You know why we have a, a, a watch that we wear on our wrist? To remind us all we haven't done. 
That seems to be the only real purpose of it, right? I was so thankful this morning that Tammy had set the alarm an hour earlier than it needed to be. I thought, why is it going off an hour earlier? And then it went off another hour later, and she was making sure that we were on track. Now, she was already up praying. She was doing whatever she was doing. And I'm going, I could have slept another hour. And I realize what a bondage it is. And I, and I have this light next to it, this little clock radio next to my bed, and, it, and, I, and I just hate looking over at it. Have you ever, do you have those? You, you roll over and you go, well, how am I doing? Oh, it's 3.30. Great. Right? And then you roll back over and you go, you know, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to ignore it. And then you're curious. How long has it been? I've got to look again, you know, and I roll over. I, oh, it's, oh, it's 4 o'clock. Great. I've got a half hour of complete wide-eyed awake, and all I'm doing is thinking about the clock. So then I cover it up. Do you ever do that? You cover it up. I'm not going to look at it. I forget it. And then I'm laying there, and I'm going, but what if I miss something? What if I sleep through? What am I doing here? And, and that's what he's talking about here. Linux is talking about, he says, we become subservient to the creation rather than the creator. Now, we know we have to operate within this world of, of laws and rules of nature and all those kinds of things. But when they begin to control us, instead of the creator controlling us, we have a problem. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs put it like this, it is a day that sets a limit to our intervention in nature and to our economic activity. There's almost, you want to talk about demon possession, there's almost a possession that drives us towards certain things. We just go, I have to have that. I've got to see that. We become conscious of being creations and not creators, he went on to say. The earth is not ours, but it's God's. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder of the integrity of nature and the boundaries of human striving. How much do you really think you can do? There comes a point at which it becomes counterproductive, that the more you do, the less you accomplish. And we, we find that hard to understand. In fact, just think about, about life in itself. Let's just go to Sunday alone. There was a time when things really didn't operate too much on Sunday, but now it is, I'd love to be in church or I'd love to get away, but I have two kids in soccer and I have one kid in hockey and I have, and you start going down the list and you realize there is no sacredness. There is nothing sacred anymore. Everything has become secular. The word secular comes from a word that means outside the gate. It was the idea of I could peer into the kingdom of God, which was sacred, but now I have been barred from that. I am secularized from it. I am separate. All I can do is look through and wonder what it was like to experience peace and joy and tranquility. The Sabbath, a weekly reminder of the integrity of nature and the boundaries of human striving. Isaiah 58 puts it like this, verse 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. You see, being a part of fellowship in church is not just because you need a boost. It is also for you to stop striving. It is for you to say God is more important than my stuff and my time and my activity and all that. It is just important. 
from doing your pleasure on my holy day. You mean, you mean this day was not made for my pleasure? No, it was made for God's pleasure. And you call the Sabbath a delight. I am so glad that I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that. And I can put myself in perspective as a creature instead of a creator. The holy day of the Lord as honorable. Now, Sabbath is technically Saturday. It means the seventh. And we as believers, we worship on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. But the principle of one and seven is there. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, all nine, nine of the ten are relisted and applicable in the New Testament. There's only one that is not, and that's the Sabbath day, because it becomes something more, and we're going to show you that in a minute. The holy day of the Lord honorable, and you shall honor him. Now look at this. It's all about honoring God. How do I honor God on this day? This is not the day for doing what I want to do. It's it's not doing your own ways, he says, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. I'm supposed to speak the words of God. I'm supposed to do the things of God. I'm supposed to think about God. I have to pull away long enough to reflect and just think about what God's up to. Nor speaking your words then. Now look at verse 14. This is the key. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. That little phrase, delight yourself in the Lord, is only used two times in Scripture, once here and once in Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know what that word delight means? It means to be delicate. It means to take the things of God and become delicate, become sensitive to them. It says, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I looked at that, and I thought, okay, there's some things that are interesting. Look at the scripture, and God is going to do the feeding. When I do what he says about keeping a day holy, God is going to feed me. Now, it's been a long time since I've been fed. I feed myself. And I'm doing a pretty good job, and I don't need an amen on that. But think about a little baby, and here's this baby, and you take a spoon, and you, okay, open your mouth. A little baby opens a mouth, and if all goes well, it stays in the mouth, right? And what are you doing? You're feeding that baby. Why? Because that baby will not eat without you or doesn't know how to eat without you. And God says there's some things you cannot eat without me. I have to feed you. I have to be your father, and you have to be an infant. If you're going to understand the kingdom of God, you have to come as a child. And one of the ways you come is let me feed you once in a while. But I'm going to feed you with something. I'm going to feed you with the heritage of Jacob. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those three patriarchs of the faith? Well, why Jacob? Why Jacob? And I thought about that a lot. And it says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And here is the heritage of Jacob. Because he has the same promises of Abraham and Isaac of the, of the land, and everywhere you go, it's going to be yours, and you're going to be the head and not the tail, and all those kind of great things. But there's one thing that's really interesting, and it's one of them is a supernatural birthright. You know, Jacob means deceiver. Jacob was always out to get something for Jacob. But it was always in the spiritual dimension Jacob wanted to succeed. And I don't know why, but God liked that. God loved Jacob for some reason, and God blessed Jacob, even though Jacob had this side of him that was just really odd and almost crooked. And so he, he was not the firstborn, and the blessings of the birthright comes to the firstborn. 
But Jacob wanted that with everything he could. And he knew his brother was a, he was a hunter and he loved to go out and, 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 and eat. And, and so his brother came in famished. He hadn't had a good day hunting. And he says, uh, give me some of that red stuff you're cooking. And he says, no, no, I won't give it to you. He said, I'm going to die. You ever said that? I'm going to die if I don't eat right now. Some of you feel that way at the end of a sermon. I'm going to die if I don't eat right now. You will survive, trust me, all right? And so he says, give me some of that red stuff right now or I'm going to die. He says, sell me your birthright. Let me be. And you know, his brother really didn't care. Esau didn't care that much about the spiritual blessings of God. Some people will sell or give up their birthright for soup. They don't really care that much about the spiritual blessings of God. They don't care about seeing God work in their life. They don't care what God is up to. And they will just hand it over for nothing. And then they find themselves later wanting it. It says later Esau sought it with tears. He, so he sold his birthright to Jacob, and his father Isaac blessed him and gave him the birthright of the father. Guess what you have? When you honor God at this principle of rest, you get the supernatural birthright. You get the right of a firstborn. It's an interesting thought. The second thing was a supernatural legacy. You know, it was God that showed up three times in Jacob's life very clearly. Two times at Bethel and one times at Peniel, and Peniel means the face of God. Let me ask you something. Would it be worth you ceasing your striving if you could get the inheritance and you could get the blessings of a firstborn in the kingdom of God? Would it be worth your cease striving for a while and honoring God if you could then have a supernatural legacy of seeing what God could do in your life? There is a mystery involved in, this, in the Sabbath. There is a completion and a perfection that comes along with the Sabbath that God spoke of. Augustine put it like this, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I want this, I want to do that, I want to go there. No, resting in him and we find him. You know, we've just begun a new series on, in school of ministry called Destined for the Throne. Just had one session. It's still time for you to sign up. I encourage you to do that afterwards. We have about 100 people or so involved in school of ministry studying the word of God and growing deep and rich in the kingdom things. It's part of what we do to understand you know, living in the days that we live in, we need to be prepared for everything that God is doing for the soon return of Christ and for the crisis of, of the moment. When Israel was moving through the wilderness and, and they were trying to find God in that situation, it talked about the presence of God. The presence of God would show up. You know, his presence can be invited into your life right now just by simply saying something like this, may your presence, may I sense your presence right now and invite the presence of God. But listen to what it says in, in uh, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 14. God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. See, when you're in the presence of God, you get rest. When you feel like everything's turning, can I just tell you something? You're not in the presence of God. When you feel like you don't know what to do and, and life is striving, you're not in the presence of God. His presence always, always, always brings rest. If your mind is turning, you're trying to figure life out, and you're, you're torn, and your mind is, you're trying to put all the pieces in place, you're not in his presence. It's easier just to call it for what it is. 
You know, in the Word of God, there's only really two kind of Christians. There's those who are walking in the Spirit of God and those who aren't. There's nothing in between. Are you walking in the fullness of the Spirit of God? You're letting God work through you. You know, when we were in South Africa, I think the story that uh, Crystal referred to earlier about uh, this girl, and I, and I went over to this girl, and, and you could tell her body was just as tense. It was almost like a piece of rock. And she wouldn't look at me, and I grabbed her face, and I just said, I said, look at me, look at me in the eye, and she just couldn't look me in the eye. And I said, are you a Christian? And she said, no. She said, but I've been baptized four times. My mom keeps taking me to church. You see, mom was trying to do religion and ritual to make her better. She said she puts a Bible by my bed at night, and I tear it in half in the middle of the night. And I took her hands, and her, and her arms were just like stiff like this. She couldn't even move, and you could just see her. And then all of a sudden, she started almost violently shaking, her arms just shaking like this as I was praying for her. And when she finally released, I said, you can release. God has got rest for you. And she just almost collapsed with tears running down her face. I loved the look on the face when we had about 500-plus kids and every person was going to get 50 to 60 kids and seeing 16- and 17- and 18-year-old students say, what do I tell them? I said, tell them everything you know and then trust the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you there is no better advice? You see, we're so worried we don't have answers for people. Tell them everything you know and trust the Holy Spirit. Well, what if I don't know how to answer this? Trust the Holy Spirit. He'll give you words. He'll bring to your member all that you need for that moment. Trust the Holy Spirit of God. Let God work in that situation. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9, it brings us back to rest. Remember, there was God's rest in Genesis. There was the rest that Moses spoke of called the Sabbath and keeping it holy in the Ten Commandments. But then the New Testament speaks about rest. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, there remains a rest for the people of God. In other words, that rest wasn't getting the job done. There remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. That story goes on to say that if Joshua uses Joshua, that, that man of the Bible, if Joshua had been able to give him rest, then why would he speak of another day? You see, rest is something you enter into. There is, a, there is something about the miracle of the Sabbath that we need to understand. Do you know that Jesus healed uh, broke the Sabbath in the eyes of the Pharisees seven times. He healed seven different times. He healed, breaking the Sabbath. Let me give you one of them. Now, when he had departed there, he went into the synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And he asked him, said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? You know what he did? He challenged their understanding of Sabbath. He saw a man with a withered hand, and he said to him, Is it lawful? Is it okay for you to be well? It almost sounds like a crazy question. It would be like somebody coming in here who, who needed healing, who needed a, their life changed, and we say, Well, we can't do it today, but could you come back tomorrow? We can schedule you in. We don't want to do anything that doesn't fit into our religious box today. Would you come back? And I love what Jesus did. He, he loved to push the envelope. 
You know, a lot of times we think of this meek, mild Jesus who just kind of walked around and, you know, blessed everybody and walked on water and multiplied bread and healed a few people. Remember, he's the Jesus that turned the tables upside down in, in, in the temple. He's the Jesus that went into the synagogue and just said, hey, by the way, is it okay for me to heal this guy? He's got a shriveled hand and everybody's been ignoring him, treating him like he's got sin in his life. How about, is it, would it be okay? And he said, I did it. Notice what it says. He said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? He wanted them to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath because he wanted to teach them about Sabbath rest. So in verse 13, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Don't you love how simple Jesus heals? He doesn't need like a prayer group for 20 hours to pray over somebody. Well, I want you to stretch out your hand. I think you'll be okay. You see, sometimes I think that we, we pray long prayers because we're convinced it's all about us. Can I just tell you, every person that's been healed in this church, every person that's been changed in this church, you're changed by Jesus and not by anybody else. It's never about us. It's never about influence, never about Phil, never about you. It's always about Jesus. Stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand. He was restored, and it was as whole as the other one. Now, you can go on and read that story because then it says they found a way. They were started to look for a way to destroy him. Why would you want to destroy someone that was healing? Because he was bringing rest. Don't talk about rest. I have too much to do. Don't talk about not striving. I have too much to do. Many of you have heard the name of George Mueller. George Mueller lived in the 1800s, and he died in 1898. He started orphanages uh, all over England, and he, and he died in 1898. His death was a national event. The whole city mourned him. The Bristol Times said of him, he was raised up for this purpose of showing that the age of miracles is not past. Over 10,000 orphans had been fed and loved by George Mueller. He had distributed over 5 million books and Bibles in his lifetime when printing was not easy, when the cost was high. More than $7.5 million had been contributed into his ministry, which may not sound like that much in today's standards, but by, by the changing of, of the currency and the value of money, it would be 50 times that amount. Imagine if someone had raised $400 million. But here's the beauty of it. He never asked one person for a penny. All he did was pray because he was convinced that it's possible to move men by God alone. When he was 70 years old, he decided it was time for a change. He applied to four or five mission agencies. He was turned down by all of them. They said, you know, you're not qualified. He funneled much of the money that he raised to Tutson Taylor, who, who really was that founding missionary in China. But finally, at 70, he said, I think it's time for a change. And from the time he was 70 until he was 93 years old, he traveled over 200,000 miles. Can I remind you, there were no jetliners. 200,000 miles. He went to America preaching. He went into Asia and Australia. When they asked him at the end of his life, what was the secret? How could you do all that you did? You know what he said? It was all about Calvary's rest. It was about entering into the power of God and understanding that he is my source and he is my strength. This last week in Africa, the Africa Crusade, I want to show you this slide. 
just remind us all, but that we had 13,354 decisions for Jesus Christ. Can you get, put your hands together for that? 13,000 people whose lives were touched. And every one of them significant. The, thing, the most significant thing is not there were 13,000. The most significant is there was one and another one and another one and another one. And one person is as significant as, as a group of people because God loves us. I believe that influence was raised up for the same reason, to show the works of God, to demonstrate to the world that the age of miracles has not ceased. Over the course of our short history, we have witnessed an unprecedented number of miracles, so much so that the community has taken notice of what we've done. So much so that the community, even this past week, came into our, into our lobby and, and asked for prayer. They said, we've heard about what's happening in prayer. As I begin to share a little bit in South Africa and Cape Town, we went in, Tammy and I went in a week early and we, we spoke in Cape Town, and I met a couple there, and as I began to share with them about what God was doing, and, and he, uh, he and his wife have a counseling ministry, and he's a pastor, but he's not pastoring a church, and I began to talk to him a little bit about influence, and, and they were so just moved by, by the day that we had speaking there, and before I knew it, they said, could we start an influence site in South Africa? And so we're supposed to talk next week on Skype and begin to think about how that would look and how God could expand the work. But I believe the work in South Africa will continue. In the space of more week, one week, we had more than 13,000 decisions for Christ. And as I was going on that, that Thursday, I drove by a stadium, and it was like the Spirit of God just said to me, you need to do a crusade. So I talked to Jared. I said, Jared, we need to do a crusade next year, not just these campaigns on, on a daily basis. We need to do a crusade in a stadium. And, of course, if you know Jared at all, he's just so excited about it, and he's, uh, you know, he'll be back here at the end of March. He divides his time between South Africa and Orange County. He said, we can do that. There's no problem. And as I was sitting there, it was like Spirit of God moved me, and, and I remembered the name of a of a. Of a of a person in Hollywood that, that has made a pretty significant uh, impact in the, in, the, in the movie industry, a guy named Kellen Lutz. And I, I text Kellen. It was just in The Expendables 3, just in, in uh, Hercules and in Twilight. And I text him, and, I, and he's a committed Christian. I said, Kellen, would you come to Africa next year? So it would be a powerful testimony, and it would draw crowds. He said, I'm in. Count me in. And I begin to see God put things together, and so I hope that we will go next year and have a crusade and see more than 50,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Put your hands together for that. Beginning in April of this year, we will redouble our efforts in evangelism and prayer. We are committed to fasting and revival miracles and night and day prayer in order to see the full release of the kingdom power before the return of Jesus Christ. And Tuesday night in our, in our time in our school of ministry, and we're sitting destined for the throne and the power of prayer. I said, it's amazing to me that Christians are, are complaining about what ISIS is doing in the Middle East, and they don't realize we have the power through prayer to stop them. We just don't exercise it. Amen. You see, God got the world started, and he said, now I want you, through prayer, to move kingdoms. I want you to move mountains. You see mountains you don't like? Quit griping and start praying. You want to see the hand of God? Then start praying. Do you really believe prayer does something? Then pray. 
You see, the real question is, is God doing what you're believing him for? If God is not doing what you're believing him for, are you really praying in faith, believing God? Or has prayer just become therapeutic to you and you just kind of feel better when you do it, but God is going to do what God's going to do, so I'm just going to, you know, find the will of God like I'm on an Easter egg hunt. And I, oh, gosh, I found the will of God. God says change the world through your prayers, through your actions. We're in partnership together, amen? We will partner together with a global prayer movement that is happening today. There is a bigger prayer movement today in the world than ever in the history of mankind. You go back into history and you find a guy by the name of John Huss. John Huss was a, was a Catholic priest who found this, this salvation, this powerful uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, began to preach the gospel. He was summoned to Constance by the Pope under false pretenses, and he was tired of Huss preaching, and, and he burned Huss at the stake. But his followers, known as the Hussites, would not be silenced. And they went all across Europe preaching the gospel. They finally found themselves uh, in a group in, in Moravia, and they became known as the Moravian Brethren. And they began to pray. They started a prayer meeting that lasted 24 hours, seven days a week for 100 years. While the Catholics and the Protestants were fighting it out, trying to figure out who was right, the Moravians had 3,000 missionaries around the world on their own budget, bought a one-way ticket to reach the masses for Jesus Christ. They sold themselves into slavery so they could reach the slaves around the world. You see, even that movement is minor compared to what's happening worldwide right now in this global prayer movement. And I believe that it's going to usher in the greatest move of God in the history of the church, and we're going to be a part of it. Amen? We're going to see what God is going to do. We're going to begin to launch a night and day prayer, and we're going to start small and begin to build, but we're going to, we're going to see God do some things beyond what we could ever ask or think according to the power, guess what, that works in us. God didn't start this church just so we have a nice church on the corner. He started to change the world. We don't have a name like influence, so we couldn't be it. Do you ever think about that? I mean, if we didn't want to be it, we could just be the non-influence church. Where do you go? I go to non-influence. Oh, that's awesome. What do you do? We didn't really do nothing. In fact, we started, a, we started a whole new club, an apathy club, but nobody showed up, and we were thrilled about it. You see, if you're going to influence, you're going to influence. You're going to change, you're going to change. You want to make a difference. You're going to be a Christian, then act like one. Amen? I mean, live in the power of the Spirit of God. Live in the power of the Spirit of God and see what God can do. You figured out what you can do, and it ain't much. Amen? It's really not. None of us. But when you let God get inside of you and you open your mouth, you say, well, I don't know what to say. Just open your mouth. I'm sure something will come out. Amen? Amen? Let me give you a couple of life applications. Here's the first one. Start resting. Now, it sounds a little opposite here, a little paradoxical. I've just told you to do something. I'm saying resting. Start resting because his grace brings joy. Stop striving. His presence brings rest. I mean, God, if I can just back off and quit trying and I let you work through me, then you can do more that way than you could ever do the other way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Stand with me as we pray, would you? Father, as we put our hearts and our minds together right now,
in prayer. We are cognizant of the fact that we are called to influence and change the world. And God, we have to stop thinking we can do it. We have to live in the presence of God. We have to live in the power of God. We have to see the hand of God. We take our hand off. We let you work, God. I want you right now just to repeat these words with me. Father, I take my hand off. I allow your spirit to work, to do more than I could ever do apart from you. Use me powerfully to influence the world, to change the world, one person at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.